0: Good morning church family. It is so great to be together to worship this morning. If we haven't met before, my name's Emily. I'm a member at BRBC and I'm married to Peter. Today we want to wish a really happy Father's Day to all the dads and granddads in our church. We are so thankful for the ways that you love and lead us and we hope that you have an awesome day celebrating with your family. Well, it's time now for our Bible reading. So if you have a Bible near you, grab it and turn to John 18, verse 28. Our scripture for today is John 1828 through 1916. And if you don't have a Bible handy, that's okay. The verses will appear right beside me on the screen. So John 18:28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing out to you, bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Well, keep your finger in John 18. I know there's a lot going on, and we're going to dive into it in just one second. But before we do, I wanted to share what I thought was a really amusing article that I uh, stumbled upon this week. And And the article is about the hidden meanings of common colloquialisms. You might be wondering, what is a colloquialism? Well, a colloquialism is just a common phrase we use all the time, every day in real life. And oftentimes what we say is not really what we mean. And so I thought it was really amusing, and I think you will too. Maybe these are some common things you say, and really what's the hidden meaning underneath them. Let me give you an example. The phrase, it's all good. Maybe you say that, maybe you've heard people say that. Well, the translation of it's all good is, it's not all good. Something has gone badly amiss, actually, and I absolutely do not want to admit it. It's all good. Have you ever used that one? A second one, it is what it is. Do you say that ever? Translation: I can't stand this particular situation I'm in. Actually, I hate it, and I don't want to talk about it, but it is what it is. The third one that the Americans say a lot, perfect. Perfect. Translation: This is fine. It's okay. Maybe it's not. I'm pretty insecure. So I'll just overstate my enthusiasm. Perfect. Fourth. Does this make any sense? Does that make sense? Do you often say that? Translation. I'm so confused about who I am that I can't even make sense to myself. Does that make sense? Or the last one. My favorite. No worries. Maybe you often say that. No worries. No worries. Translation. I can handle this. But I wish you hadn't have asked. No worries. Oftentimes what we say is not actually what we mean. There's sort of two layers of meaning often in what we say, isn't there? There's something underneath what is actually said. Well, today as we continue on in our sermon series Face to Face, we see this face-to-face encounter between Jesus and Pilate. And we're going to see the author of John, the author of this gospel, give us hint after hint And what seems to be going on, and what is really going on, there's more than meets the eye. Now, the the vast majority of us know who Pontius Pilate is, or at least we've heard the name at an Easter service, perhaps. He's perhaps the most memorable character in the crucifixion story of Jesus. We even learned recently, didn't we, the Apostles' Creed, which has the line, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Amidst all these grand statements in the Apostles' Creed, we have Pontius Pilate, who sticks out like a sore thumb off his particularity and specificity. This man, for roughly four hours of a normal workday for him, he went down in history. Some people consider Pilate a villain. Others consider him a curious seeker, and others think he's just a cowardly judge. So what's really going on in this story and what are we to make of the story that we just read? Now, on the surface, it seems like a simple story, doesn't it? A simple story of wicked people casting out a prophet. That's nothing we haven't seen before. A story of humiliation and violence. It's a story of corrupt, people-pleasing politicians skirting injustice under the rug to make sure the city is calm. And it's a story about a silent God. It's not all that different to the world we live in, is it? If we're honest, I'm sure all of us often admit we wonder, why is God silent amidst the tragedies of this world? We feel it as we look at the ruined economies and the death toll of the pandemic, as we look at the poverty and the violence even of Yemen this past week, we, as we think that, as we look at the presence of racism in our world, the sudden loss in our communities, our own sickness, our own pain, our own burdens, why does God seem silent? And in this story, why is Jesus so quiet when he meets Pilate, right? Doesn't he realize the opportunity that's right in front of him? He has a, a world stage to explain. This is the moment where he can give an explanation of it all. Why? Doesn't he, though? Well, as we've said, there's more than meets the eye in this story and in this encounter between Jesus and Pilate. Yes, it reads like a meaningless tragedy on the surface. But John wants us to see that although it looks like a tragedy, in fact, it's a comedy. Now, I don't mean comedy in the sense that you'll be bent over your seat wheezing in laughter like a comedy routine. But rather, the inevitable tragedy and brokenness of this world is met with an unforeseen, surprising twist as Jesus and Pilate face off. There's a happy twist underneath all of this. And in this drama, this comedy and tragedy, Pilate stands at the very center of the drama. In fact, the way John even writes and tells this story, it mimics a theater There's the front stage, and there's a backstage. And the story moves back and forth to the front stage, where Pilate and the crowds are, and backstage, where just Pilate and Jesus are. This happens seven times in the story. Outside, inside, outside, inside, outside. There are seven acts, seven movements to this drama. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just invite you to take a seat with me, which I'm sure you're already doing. And watch this drama unfold around a man named Pontius Pilate, who's trying his hardest to get to the bottom of who this quiet, silent, accused man is named Jesus. Is this a tragedy or is this a comedy? So we're going to look at all seven acts. That sounds like a lot, but don't worry, we will go quickly through them. So we're going to jump in in Act 1. Act 1, The Accused. Would you reread with me verses 28 28? To 32, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Now they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside and to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now this was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now a little background. Pilate and the Jewish leaders and basically the whole nation of Israel aren't really on the best of terms. There's been lots of agitation, agitation. Pilate is under immense pressure from the emperor to establish rule and calm and peace. And many of the ways that he does that agitates the Jewish people. Normally, they think of the entire Roman Empire, the Roman governor who is Pilate, as the enemy. But here in this story, they see him, we see them coming to Pilate, asking for his help. They bring Jesus and say, Will you put this man on trial? He has done evil. Now, at this time, in fact, just a few years before, the Roman Empire took away the right of local authorities of uh, holding high trials where any sort of death penalty could be enforced. And they removed that power from the local authorities to local Roman authorities like Pilate. These Jewish leaders who have felt unmasked by Jesus, who have felt agitated by Jesus, who just want to get rid of him, have to go to the enemy in many ways to have Jesus crucified. Now, you can already tell in this passage how much the Jewish leaders really despise Jesus. Now, in your English translations, they often refer to Jesus as this man. This man has done these things. This man has done evil things. But in the Greek, the word man isn't even there. Jesus isn't even given a pronoun. Just this, this thing needs to be put on trial. They are upset with Jesus. Now, this just seems like, again, wicked people wanting to get their own way. But again, there's irony and comedy already being uh, patterned into this story as we see John make a few interesting points in this we read that they are not allowed to go into Pilate's headquarters for the trial. It says they have to stand outside of the headquarters so that they might not be defiled because they want to eat the Passover. Now, in the Jewish culture, to enter into a home of a pagan Gentile, especially a Roman governor, it would make you religiously unclean. And in order to sort of cleanse yourself, again, you'd have to leave the community for a set period of time. But notice, it's the time of the Passover. It's the time of the festivals. The Jewish people do not want to dirty themselves by any means so they can celebrate the Passover. Can you, can you catch the irony of it? That these people are so concerned about keeping themselves pure as they act in the dirtiest, in the dirtiest trial that there ever would be. Do you see the irony of it? And the reason is they want to eat the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? It commemorates the time when the people of Israel were set free from Pharaoh, the one ruling over them. And here the, the uh, Israelite religious leaders come to Pilate, Pharaoh's sidekick, but just going by a different name of Rome. They go to him and ask, can you get rid of this man who's actually the one who wants to set us free Now this seems just backwards, it seems bizarre, but the last verse in this act, we read, and this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This isn't catching Jesus off guard, the wickedness of the human heart, the false accusations. In fact, this was to fulfill what Jesus had said. Well, what was it that Jesus had said? Well, in the Jewish understanding of any sort of death penalty we see in Leviticus chapter 20, that would mean stoning someone, the whole community. Now, Jesus could have died that way if that power had not been taken from the religious leaders. But they go to Pilate. And what is Rome's method of execution? The crucifixion. Hanging a man up on a wooden cross. Now, if you can remember, just a few weeks ago, we studied Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John's Gospel. And do you remember how this new life would come, Jesus said? He said, in the same way that the bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole and everyone looked to be saved, in the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up. You see, Jesus' accusers think, they're convinced, that if Jesus dies, this disgraceful, death of a criminal on a cross. His disciples, any every future attempt they have of taking Jesus seriously as a Messiah, it will just be nailed into oblivion. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's convinced that if he dies in this way, he will be enthroned in the hearts of human beings in a manner that no other worldly success or triumph or coronation could ever match in significance or power. There's more than meets the eye in this unfair accusation. This hypocritical charge is actually coming to fulfill what Jesus had said, that he'd be lifted up on a Roman cross. But nevertheless, they have put Jesus into the hands of Pilate and they have put Pilate in a very difficult position. And so we move from front stage to backstage and act to the truth. Would you reread with me verses 33 to 38? So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say this, say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Pilate said to him, what is truth? As, as Pilate takes Jesus into the backstage, he wants to get to the bottom of the matter and move on with his day. Let's cut the fat, Jesus. Are you really the king of the Jews? <laughs> Jesus does not answer the question, but in a very typical fashion, Jesus asks a question back. Well, are you asking or are you asking because other people have said so? It's as if, for a moment, the judge is no longer the judge. We're wondering who is actually on trial here. Jesus treats Pilate as an equal as they question each other back and forth. As Pilate tries to figure out who is this man, Jesus is also sussing out Pilate's motives and his inner heart. Now Pilate's getting annoyed. Okay, let's try a different question then. What have you done to make them so upset? Jesus again responds in a very typical Jesus-like fashion, and he doesn't answer the question directly, but circles around to the first question. He says, well, let me tell you about my kingdom. And we see that in verses 36 and 37. He says, my kingdom is not like the other kingdoms of this world. In fact, it's from above. It's not just that I'm a king. I'm a whole different kind of king and a whole different kind of kingdom. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus' kingdom is not here on earth, but rather it's not of the earth. Jesus has come to bring his kingdom that is in heaven here on earth. Now, what is the difference between these kingdoms that Jesus says? Well, he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would be fighting. It matters that these are two different kinds of kingdom because they don't operate with the same force that the kingdoms of this world operate Human kingdoms are constantly about reordering and redistributing power through violence and fighting and dominance, but not Jesus' kind of kingdom. Jesus' kingdom advances through the truth. Jesus gives us his very life statement here to bear witness about the truth. That is why I have come into this world, not through swords and shields, but through speaking and testifying. Now, think of yourself as a judge. <laughs> as a judge, those are the words that you'd presumably want to hear, right? Think of the defendant. My whole life is co- I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Can you ask for a more perfect man on trial who believes that is his very purpose in life? And then Jesus poses almost a question to Pilate. He says, everyone who listens to my voice hears the truth. He points very personally to Pilate. It's almost as if you can hear the question being said to Pilate. Pilate, are you listening? This is the single most important moment in your life. He brings it down to a very close and personal question. Can you hear me speaking? This is Pilate's opportunity. But he responds with three famous words. What is truth? Now, I would love to have a tape recording to hear the tone of Pilate's reply. Was it cynical? What is truth? Was it seeking? What really is truth? Was it inviting? Was it dismissing? Scholars and theologians have been trying to figure out how Pilate is asking this question. Is he genuinely curious? Or is this more Pilate's cynical bafflement, if there is even any truth at all? No no doubt, Pilate had heard all the philosophical spiels of his day, he had seen war, he had dealt with these sorts of accusations in search for the truth, and maybe he has just run down what even is truth anymore? It's a question we all ask in the struggles of our lives. Not just theoretical, is the sky blue, but what is really true and solid in our lives? What actually rings true? This is Jesus's moment, right? He has the full attention of the man who has his hand on the red button of the execution. And Jesus is silent. Jesus is silent. He doesn't make an answer. In the other Gospels, the Gospels actually say he doesn't say anything. But in John's Gospel, there's just nothing. What is truth? Emptiness. What is truth is answered by the silence of Jesus. Now, that's not because Jesus is confounded by the question, as if he doesn't know the truth, but because Jesus often knows that silence says more than words do. You know, we prefer quick-fixed cliches that sort of fill the empty space of that sort of a question. We have answers ready in the chamber of our minds if we were ever asked that question. But Jesus allows Paul to sit in the weight of the question. Jesus is not trigger-happy with his words. He is not a man of cheap propaganda. And that's because Pilate has already been exposed to the truth. As Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel, Don't you know I am the way, the truth, and the life? Truth is standing right in front of him. What is truth, Pilate? Can you hear my voice? Can you see me? Now, there's more we can say here, but Pilate seems convinced that whatever truth is, he knows this for certain, that Jesus is not guilty and does not need to die. And so we see Pilate try to free Jesus in Act 3, the substitute. Would you read verses, the end of verse 38 to verse 40 with me? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate hopes that his pronouncement, his final word of innocence, will be enough. That he will have the final word. We see that there was a Jewish custom probably set up on the day of Passover, to release a prisoner, to sort of commemorate the freedom of the Passover uh, celebration. And so Pilate hands Jesus back into the hands of the religious leaders, hoping that these are good, upstanding, truth-seeking religious leaders. So shall I release to you the king of the Jews? But to his surprise, they cry out, Not this, but give us Barabbas. Again, not even using a pronoun for Jesus, not this thing, but Barabbas. The corruption of justice is not only found in the secular government, but it has also infected the very soul of Israel too. Now, not much needs to be said here about the second layer of meaning, is it? I mean, the irony is everywhere, and it's obvious. Jesus, who's been falsely accused of nothing more than telling the truth, of being a revolutionary has actually swapped his life for the life of an actual real criminal, Barabbas. Now we read the last verse, Barabbas was a robber. Now that word robber sounds quite tame, doesn't it? it sounds like someone who may have had a run in with the law, tried to steal something, but that word is actually much more harsh. Some of you might see there's a footnote or an asterisk next to that word. If you look at it and look at the alternate translation, they are an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, a terrorist. The religious leaders and the nation of Israel would rather have a terrorist on the loose in their own neighborhood than a man who came to tell them the truth of their own heart. Violence rather than nonviolence. The power wielder instead of the peacemaker. This is not what Pilate had planned. This is not how he saw things going. But he cannot go back on his word. And so he frees the insurrectionist, the terrorist, and he takes Jesus once more backstage to have him flogged and tortured and act for, act for the king. Would you read verses 1 and 3 with me of chapter 19? Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him. With their hands. Paul thinks that maybe he might be able to administer justice and release Jesus eventually. So he gives in to the crowd. He'll have him flogged and tortured. If He's thinking, maybe if I can give Jesus a bad enough beating, then hopefully that will satisfy the crowds. And so Jesus handed over to the soldiers and they begin to beat him. But not just physical pain and torture and suffering. They take a crown of thorns and place on his head and a purple robe, and they mock him, and they humiliate him. This is the Son of God, the real king of the Jews, being spat upon, whipped, shamed, and mocked. No king would ever look like this. At least no king like we know of any king. Now John interestingly notes that the soldiers struck Jesus with their hands. This is not a humane or decent beating. This is, this is so inhumane that the soldiers are taking pleasure in it. Now think about it. Maybe you've gotten a bird caught in the grill of your car or sadly run over an animal on the side of the road and you've had to stop and put the animal out of its misery. Most of us can't bear to watch. Dad probably has to go get a shovel, keep it at arm's length because we don't like it. But here we are told the soldiers use their own hands to strike Jesus. Why is God silent? Surely he ought to have something to say about evil. We want power. We want vindication. Well, perhaps this is what the prophet Isaiah spoke about concerning the coming servant of God in chapter 50 of Isaiah. The prophet says, I gave my back to those who strike me in my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? We see in this act The meekness that you just spoke about so often as he taught the crowds. But this meekness, it is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is merely power under control. It's a refusal to be shaped by the aggressive possessiveness. And it is to be shaped by humble trust. Jesus looks weak, but there's more than meets the eye. His face is set like a flint. Here we see a king with an otherworldly kind of power that is not shaped by, po- by aggressive possessiveness or reactionary violence. We see a meek king, a king with power under control. But surely this is enough for the crowds, right? Well, Pilate parages back out into f- front stage as we see in Act 5, the man. Act 5, the man. Would you read verses 4 to 6 with me? Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. Again, Pil- Pilate speaks another one of his most famous lines after bringing Jesus out to show the crowds Behold the man. Maybe this will placate the masses. Look at this bloodied, strung out, tortured man. Look at the humiliation that he has endured. Go on, insult him, and let's just move on and put this behind us. But the crowd, for the first time in the story, actually speak what they want. They scream what they're really after. Crucify him. Crucify him. Behold the man. Again, there's more than meets the eye here. There's something else going on. John records this phrase that Pilate says of Jesus, because behold the man. To a careful reader of the Bible, there is a second layer of meaning. Pilate is directly quoting from 1 Samuel chapter 9. And in 1 Samuel, we read of Israel crying out for a king. Now, the nation of Israel had never had a king at that point. So we read in 1 Samuel of the prophet Samuel seeking out this king who God has chosen to be king over his people. we read these words from chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. When Samuel saw Saul the Lord told him, Behold the man of whom I spoke, he it is who shall govern my people. Behold the man, the king of Israel. And here Pilate stands, Jesus in front of Israel and says, Behold the man, the king of the Jews. Can you taste the the irony and the tragic comedy of it all? The early church fathers believed that actually this saying was meant to be traced back even further in the first pages of the Bible. And in Genesis, the first couple of pages, we read about the creation of the man, the human, Adam, that he is created in God's image, and his task was to rule over the Garden of Eden. Now, as we know, the story, Adam falls, and ever since then, we've been looking for the true human the true man who is the perfect image of God. And here is Jesus, robed and crowned with thorns. Behold the human. As Paul will write later in the book of Colossians, here is the image of the invisible God. But the crowds, they're not interested. Although Pilate has been attempting to sort of maneuver his way creatively to what he thinks is right, we will see him now sensationally fail and his name will go down in the creeds as the tormentor of the only Son of God who suffered under Pontius Pilate. And so the crowds use their last line of attack. They instill fear in Pilate with a simple statement. He says that he's the Son of God. So we move one last time into the headquarters of Pilate in Act 6, the Son. Would you read verses 7 to 11 with me? Verse 7. The Jews answered him. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, at the time, the Roman emperors were thought of and actually called sons of God. The Romans believed that actually humans could be divine. And so when the religious leaders say, don't you know this man is claiming to be a son of God? Pilate is actually afraid. Could this be a Roman divine human? Or maybe this is... This man is somehow related to the emperor, my boss, and begins to be terrified. And he says, Jesus, where are you from? Just tell me that at least. What is your background? Now, throughout John's gospel, Jesus has constantly been saying where he's from. In John 7 and John 8 and John 9, he tells everyone, you don't know where I'm coming from. I'm coming from above. But again, to, to Pilate's question, Jesus did not answer him. Jesus is silent yet again. Are you some sort of God that I need to be afraid of? And the irony is, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but not in the way Pilate thinks. Jesus had been sent into the world by the Father to save us. And he says that time and time again in this gospel. But in verse nine, Jesus gives no answer. He just stands there. Now Pilate's getting upset and frustrated by all of this. We see his guard lower, and he begins to threaten this mute Jesus. Don't you realize I have the authority to crucify you, Jesus? And here we see that Jesus again answers his original question in an indirect way. In verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Have you noticed that throughout this, Jesus had this quiet Confidence, despite all the false accusations, all the physical turmoil and beatings, all the humiliation, knowing full well that these people were debating whether or not to give him the most gruesome, tragic death. How is he able to deal with this fear, this worry? How is he able to not justify himself? I mean, I can't even be accused of forgetting to take out the trash without trying to justify myself, but to be innocent and face this kind of darkness. He's able to deal with the fear and pain of what is coming because of this one truth. You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Notice, Jesus is agreeing with Pilate here. You do have authority, Pilate, to have me crucified. Jesus does not deny the turmoil and pain of what he's going through. In fact, last night Jesus was in the garden pleading with his father if there's any other way we know he will scream out in pain as nails are nailed into his hands on the cross, and he will die in pain. There's no denying that. But Jesus is able to face the darkness because he really is the Son of God. And the Father is the one who has the final authority. Jesus says, I know where I come from and where I'm going. I know who has the ultimate authority. Pilate's authority over Jesus is subordinate to God's authority over Pilate. Jesus gets his comfort in this moment, not because Pilate's will is powerless, it is powerful, but he gets his comfort because Pilate's will is guided. Not because Jesus isn't in the hands of Pilate, but because Pilate is in the hands of Jesus's father. When we face the tragedy and the turmoil of this broken world, the injustice and the suffering, we will feel it deep in our bones and cry out and lament. We learn from Jesus, who set his face like a flint, how to deal with the pain and the fear, because the Father knows exactly what is happening. This means that our comfort does not come from the powerlessness of our enemies. Our enemies are very powerful, but our comfort comes from the Father's sovereign rule over their power. This is the point of Romans 8 trial, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger and the sword cannot separate us from Christ because in all these things we are conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus is able to stand his ground because he is the son which leads us to the final verdict the crescendo act seven of the lamb. Would you read verses 12 to 16 with me? Verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king other than Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. The crowds dig into Pilate one last time. If you release Jesus, you are a traitor of the emperor. We've put you into a corner. This is the crescendo. Pilate brings Jesus once more time, one more time to the crowds, and he sits down on the judgment seat to give his sentence. And as this sentence is given, John highlights two vital details that tell us there's more going on underneath the surface. The first detail, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. This was the day when all the Israelite families would be choosing their lambs to be slaughtered for the Passover meal, which was, again, a celebration of God's judgment passing over them from the wiped, spilled blood of a lamb on a doorpost. I mean, we aren't told, but you can imagine smelling the spices in the air that day preparing for the Passover meal. The sound of the young lambs being prepared in the background, maybe even. And it is on this day out of all the days that Jesus stands in front of Israel, and in verse 15 we read these words Away with him, away with him. This is the first time we've heard these words in this story, but this is not the first time in John's Gospel that we've heard these words. Here at the end of the Gospel of John, we hear it echoes to the very beginning of the Gospel. These are words spoken to us by another man crying out as he looked upon Jesus. Do you remember John the Baptist, what he said when he saw Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is not a coincidence. This is John translating the tragedy of the world for us. This man, Jesus, is not just a quiet revolutionary who was unjustly slaughtered at the hands of wicked men. This man, Jesus, was truth himself, who was substituted for us, even when we are in the crowd shouting, crucify him. This man, Jesus, really is the king who showed immense power as he fought for your life and for my life. This man, Jesus, really is the image of God who gives himself in love and lays down his life for you and me. This man, Jesus, is the son of God who obeyed his father until his last dying breath because he knew He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our sins, my sins, and your sins. There is more than meets the eye in this story. God is silent. Not because he does not want to give us an explanation to the tragedy of life and the wickedness of our fallen world. But the Lamb of God is silent because he is more concerned about removing the sin and the darkness of this world. God refuses to say anything where he does not want to be found. But here, Jesus is pushing us to the place where God does want to be found. At the foot of the cross, as the son of God, the image of the invisible God steps into the gap, steps into the darkness, into the injustice, into the pain, into the judgment, and he removes it. He gets rid of it so that in his righteous power, he might remake us in this image of the true humanity. This is the power of the cross. This is the strength of God found in meekness, power under control. So as we end, my question for you this morning, is the story as we look at it, is this a tragedy with darkness and death ending, having the final word, or is this story a comedy that ends with the outpouring of God's happy blessing of life and love? Is the surface level reading the truth, or is there more than meets the eye? You are faced with the same question the Pilate faced. Who is this Jesus? Now, for those of us who hear Jesus' voice and can recognize the truth, my encouragement to you this morning as we close, say so when you take this gospel into your life, when you bear witness to the truth to the people around you, you will look very, very weak. You will bear tragedies and pain in this fallen world, but do not lose heart, for you know where you are headed. You know the one who has the final ultimate authority. You know the person of truth himself, the one who substituted himself for you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who stepped into the brokenness and said, do not fear, for I have overcome the world. As we go, I want to read just a few verses from Isaiah 53, which get to the heart that life often is a tragedy in many ways. From Isaiah 53, we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. All we like feet sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But the tragedy does not have the final word. For the comedy at the end is that the Lamb is on the throne. As we read, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. May you go in that peace this morning. Go in peace, saints.